Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Quality Education, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about improving our current education systems for the radically changing 21st century global society. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today, we're speaking with Rosemary Sage. She's a professor in communication sciences and a qualified speech pathologist, and Riccardo Matucci. She's researched Italian grammar at Cambridge University and has been a teacher trainer in Ethiopia and the United States. Their book is How World Events Are Changing Education. It publishes this month. Rosemary and Ricardo, thank you again so much for sitting down with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So tell us first about the difference between macro and micro politics and how they influence education. Uh, Yes, well, we started off with an analysis of world situation, politics, education, social and technological issues. Uh, And of course, if you're talking about politics, which underpins everything, we have to understand what type of politics uh, we are all involved in. Of course, we all know about macro politics. It's the large scale state power that's used to regulate organisations. And of course, with regard to education, it sets our curriculum, uh, the way we um, organize our schools, uh, our monitor, our our educational standards. So that's the macro politics. But uh, by far, uh, becoming uh, very influential nowadays with everybody having their big say about everything in the world is micro politics, because that employs both formal and informal power by individuals and groups to achieve the goals of the state, but also their own particular personal goals, uh, so that you find with these two types of politics, um, you've got cooperation, of course, and conflict processes, uh, with great differences between politics of education and politics in education. And according to the context where uh, institutions are, the practice may be very different. Now, an example of micropolitics is perhaps a group of parents not accepting uh, the rules about school uniform uh, or the, t- the curricula being taught in, in a school like sex education because they have a different value system uh, and they feel this discriminates against it. And, and this, of course, in our multicultural societies, is becoming an issue. I mean, I've taught in schools where there have been 234 different languages spoken uh, and people coming from many different areas of the world with very different experiences, histories, traditions, ways of thinking and behaving. So at the macro politics level, you know, there is huge debate now about how we... Uh, try to um, observe both the state ideas about education, but also uh, 
help to, well, increase our our own ideas, which I, I think is happening a lot in schools because there's lots of uprising <laughs> at the micro level in our schools today. And in, indeed, even staff have been uh, suspended or or even their, their jobs cut because uh, they are saying things or teaching things that their clients or are, are not happy about. So I hope I've explained that fairly clearly. I'm wondering if you can elaborate. Is that a new phenomenon that we're seeing that teachers are being suspended for political reasons? Or is that maybe something cyclical that we haven't realized has happened before? I I definitely think it's a new phenomenon, but definitely in my experience, I mean, certainly when I went to school, you absolutely respected parents and students respected what was was the rules and uh, behaviour being perpetrated in, in the school setting. But now that's not the case. I mean, people have very different ideas of what their children or or students should be taught, don't they? And uh, this is influencing education in a, in a very woke way. That means a, a, a lot of ideas are not being uh, supported, only the ideas that the dominant group want. And I, I think this is quite a danger in education because education was set up to look at all views and um, make your own opinion about it. Uh, as a learner, but it's being very much pushed in the direction of dominant groups now at the micro-political level. So your book focuses on how world events are changing education, and obviously no world event uh, has been bigger lately than the pandemic. So can you just tell me how has the pandemic affected education, especially when it comes to e-learning and the use of virtual reality? I would say that e-learning has accelerated in education in the pandemic, reflecting on more effective use with attention for those not suited to the predominantly auditory visual mode, preferring processing through the haptic sensory channel. Now, there have been many studies, especially during these last two years, and the one done by the OECD says that, for example, UK education is well supplied with technology. We can say the same thing for Italian um, situation, but staff, unfortunately, are not trained to deliver it effectively. Why? Because um, because everybody had to um, to change the way of teaching overnight. Nobody was prepared to take technology into their classes, into their teaching process in the proper way. And still now, we don't know technology well. And this is the reason why many uh, teachers are still very reluctant, because they cannot use it in the way it should be done. So now education, I believe that education must rebalance to develop a more holistic world approach for coping with life. 
fixing on real, not only abstract issues. Again, the OECD papers by Berkeley in 2020 reports that education will never return to former teaching ways following the pandemic. And the 50% of it will be a blended learning. And then there is an urgent need for ongoing professional development that monitors new teaching modes using, for example, practitioner recording models to record and review evidence with colleagues, other schools, other continents. Um, it is said that uh, uh, the 60% of students worldwide do not reach required educational standard. So it is vital to review policies and practices which were disrupted. We have to speed up introduction of e-learning highlights communication and language uses. And so the use of, 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 language, of the proper language is vital for e-learning because we know that in our class, classes are um, multicultural and not the mother tongue is spoken properly. A, a clear example is uh, is the English are uh, the English classes, and in Italy too now we are facing problems with people who are not learning Italian the proper way. So communication is fundamental for e-learning. If we cannot communicate, then it's going to be difficult to apply any any kind of any kind of teaching. Communication matters. And we need to make it more matter than that people struggle less. And this is what I believe is the basis for e-learning in the future, in the year to come. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, on uh, Ricardo's very full um report on on e-learning and the pandemic i mean what what the pandemic has showed is that teachers do not know how to teach with technology which is largely visual and auditory with no feedback so they need to teach in much smaller um groups of information and uh, organize it rather differently to they do in a classroom uh, because that's only 8% of students across the world, the research shows, uh, have found e-learning uh, in the pandemic period satisfactory. So it does need a very big uh, re-look at how teachers are trained uh, for different ways of teaching now. We go into quite some detail of that in the book. Yeah, and speaking of you know, changing those systems and changing the way uh, teachers are teaching now in this kind of brave new world, I guess you could call it. Um, your book posits the question, is school an outdated system? So if that is the case, what other ways of learning are effective? And I guess this applies not only to certain technologies being outdated, but we're also talking about ways of teaching like lecturing for example yeah i wrote a chapter on that um 
because I remember going to a very interesting uh, conference at Manchester University Business School. It was called It's Good to Talk. And at the conference was a group of Chicago University academics. And they were presenting their research to show that only 15% of what we learn is in a formal context like a school, college or university. I found that quite fascinating and also quite illuminating because we put such a lot of emphasis, don't we, on formal education in school and not enough emphasis on the learning experiences that children actually need outside the four walls of a classroom. Uh, well, and, and it is interesting to note that formal mass education is a very recent phenomenon in the history of humankind. It's only been compulsory in the UK since 1893. And why? Because the industrial rise in 19th century Europe required employees with a new kind of knowledge and skills and an expert teacher uh, instructed groups of, uh, of students, often in quite large groups, um, in information and abilities for their future work. And it was a very compliant sort of approach to teaching. Um, we now know, of course, that it is not the best way of teaching uh, to sit in front of a teacher spouting lots of knowledge at us. Uh, because, yeah, we perhaps gain knowledge for a short time to pass an exam, but we don't retain it because in order to retain knowledge, we need to apply it in a practical situation with other people to share our ideas and experiences with. That's the way we actually learn and understand uh, and Unfortunately, though, a research is showing and experts and reports like the OECD reports are continually confirming that uh, our transmissive style of education is still very prevalent, even though we know it is not all that uh, it, uh, not all that successful for many students and certainly is not at all what the modern world uh, needs or wants because now we have robots or intelligent machines that carry out uh, most of the routines now in a lot of people's jobs. And that's amazing because up to date, 75% of most jobs were routines. So we can see how the roles of people in the workplace are changing massively. And they're changing in the ways that people need personal and practical abilities, the ability to work and communicate across discipline in teams, which we've seen so well in places like Italy with their Education for Robotic Programme, which is headed up by uh, engineers, psychologists, therapists, teachers, you know, an interdisciplinary team. We've seen how well it works to provide the particular abilities that the workplace now um, needs. 
Uh, and how can we do this? Are there alternative ways of doing it? Well, for some time, uh, people have been dissatisfied with formal education. In England, there was someone called Alexander Sutherland Neal, and he started a free school called Summerhill in 1921. And um, it was a school where lessons were optional. Uh, children could go and learn in front of a, a in a group with other people if they wanted to, but if they wanted to go for a walk or a swim or do something else, that was fine because the view was that you only learn if you're interested and you have freedom. Now, in America, Peter Gray, who was a psychology, who was a psychology professor at Boston University, of course, a successful outcome of a traditional education, but he had a son called Scott, who at nine year old, uh, years old was not at all cooperating in the traditional education in school. Uh, and Peter Gray thought, well, I need to do something about this. So what did he do? He set up his own school called the Sudbury Valley School uh, with children in charge able to choose exactly what they wanted to do, the idea to provide a very stimulating environment, helping them to find their own interests and uh, giving them an awareness of how they learnt in their own way, because we all learn differently. Uh, so there has been for a very long time, you could say a hundred years now, um, alternatives to the school formal system. And it's even more necessary today for us to be thinking about how we can learn best. It's very interesting that there are now about, in, in the UK, 100,000 children who are homeschooled. And this is every year increasing massively. Uh, of course, there are 8.9 million children in schools or students in schools and colleges in the UK, but there's a significant amount that are homeschooled because um, they like the freedom to learn. So there's quite a, a lengthy chapter in the book which uh, talks about this and shows uh, a number of different ways that uh, learning can be uh, promoted best. So we were quite excited about uh, having the opportunity to do that. <laughs> so when we talk about innovative ways of educating, uh, that's a good time to talk about Maker Faire, um, which you describe in one of your last chapters. Can you tell us what is Maker Faire and what does it mean for students? Well, Make Fair is a very fascinating uh, event, I would say, and uh, is a gathering of fascinating, curious people who enjoy learning and love sharing what they can do together in order to acquire knowledge and skills from each other and improve their designs. From engineers to artists, scientists to crafters, Make Fair is a venue for those creators to present their hobbies, experiment, and project. I would say that uh, it, it was a shame that uh, during Steve Jobs' 
and uh, Steve uh, Wozniak, Make a Fair was not there because this is the idea of taking people out from their garage, from their attic, where they have been working, following their uh, desire, their dreams, and then use them for the community, for the rest of the world. And this is what Make Fair does. Make Fair practically uh, is, um, is, is considered the greatest show and tell on earth, a family-friendly showcase of invention, creativity, and resourcefulness. To involve and attract people, they make fair community say, glimpse the future and get inspired. So uh, it, this has been going on uh, in San Mateo, uh, California, um, since 2006. And practically since the first year, it has been a cult and uh, it has been spread out everywhere in the world. Uh, obviously, the pandemic stopped. Uh, and then last year, they had it only um, via uh, internet. Uh, this year in Europe, there was the Make a Fair in Rome. And Rome was the first and the unique uh, exhibition for Europe. And this lasted three days. And uh, it was a great success because uh, it had practically 226 exhibitors and in six different um, in six different areas from art to uh, earth to uh, community and uh, and then all the people who have um, worked or have um, uh, inspiration doing something for the community, for the world, they get there and they communicate from them, among them. And this is very important, communication and sharing ideas and improving their knowledge through other, knowing through other knowledge, through other people. And what is extremely important of this year is that a lot of projects were uh, done by girls. Uh, which means, in fact, in the chapter, I call it uh, Make a Fair is Turning Pink, because since the beginning, which was um, exclusively for men, now uh, the exhibition of this year was, uh, I would say, the 40% done by women. And this is a big improvement, which means that women got into the area of science much more than before and they were very much appreciated. So I, I put some picture of, uh, uh, of, of girls, 10, 11, 12 years old, trying to make uh, some um, uh, scooter, some object from recycled uh, things, from recycled object they had at home uh, under the surveillance of their parents, but they were using drills and all these things which we normally see in the hands of boys. Uh, that was very fascinating and that was a big achievement uh, for women and for the for Make a Fair itself because it gave another point of view of seeing the utility of certain invention. So I would say that uh, Make a Fair is the opportunity for the world 
to uh, to improve because you don't learn only from books but from your own experience from what you are able to do from what you have learned maybe from your grandparent or from your, your parent to to assemble something which is useful for the community and this is make fair the um, the price for the invention creativity and collaboration I, I was very privileged to have a look at some of the educational robotic projects that were happening in school. And uh, Ricarda took me to a school she knows well in Rieti, which is in, uh, in the mountains outside Rome, a, a very lovely town, which originally the Pope used to live in. Was that not right, Ricarda? But yeah. anyway, in the school there, the... Um, I mean, the idea of a lot of these Maker Faire type projects is that they look to see what are the issues that need and the problems that need solving in the community. So this group of students, girls and boys, had gone to the town council and said, well, what is it that we can help you with uh, uh, in a problem in Rieti? And one of them was to know how many people used the, the park in the middle of the town. So uh, they developed a robot that counted the people going in and out of the park. But the crucial thing was it had to exclude dogs. <laughs> it couldn't count dogs, so we found that very amusing. But as a result of that, uh, and the numbers of people that they were able to look at using the park, they were able to develop a plan for facilities needed for the different types of population. And I thought this was a really excellent project. And everybody was really enthusiastic about it. That's what I liked. The students loved it. The teachers loved it. And the community loved it. And this is what I think present education should be about, making us good citizens that can solve our own problems. Well, hopefully as life, I guess, hopefully gets back to normal, uh, we get to see more of those maker fairs in person. It sounds like there's a lot of fascinating and innovative things happening there. Uh, Rosemary Sage and Ricarda Matucci, their book is How World Events Are Changing Education. It publishes this January. Thank you to you both. All right, thank you. <laughs> it was a pleasure. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.